Turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, Isaiah chapter 57, as we uh, continue in our series on Isaiah. Sometime back, uh, I talked to a law student about the Christian faith, and one problem that he was wrestling with was the fact that a friend of his, who was a pastor, a very gifted pastor, a very powerful ministry, had died suddenly, unexpectedly, at a relatively young age. And uh, he, uh, he said, how could God do that? Now, this man was doing so much good. He was really troubled uh, by this. Maybe this passage in Isaiah 57 sheds some light on this. Notice the reason for the death of some of the righteous. In verse 1, the righteous perish and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Notice the situation. Here's the fact of the untimely death of righteous people. Uh, righteous, uh, righteous, biblically speaking, is one who's in right standing with God. In one sense, there's none righteous. None of us have obeyed God's commands. All have sinned and come short. And the wages of sin is death, meaning hell. A separation from God eternally. That's what we deserve, all of us, for our having broken God's holy law. And uh, yet there's a way that we can be reckoned righteous, accredited with a perfect record uh, through faith. You remember Genesis 15:6, classic passage, uh, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Abraham was unrighteous, like all of us, but he was reckoned righteous through faith. Now, in the Old Testament, they were taught to believe God's promise to forgive them through a lamb that God appointed. They would bring a lamb and confess their sin over the head of the lamb, and their guilt being transferred to the lamb. The lamb's blood would be shed, and then they were told they were forgiven. Uh, well, <clears throat> that lamb, of course, really pictured the true lamb, Jesus Christ, who was going to come and pay for Abraham's sins and David's and Job's, jo- uh, Joseph's, so on. And yours and mine. And uh, so the way God would forgive man would be through his son taking our guilt. And thus the law is not being overlooked. The law has been satisfied in full. And uh, Christ not only took our guilt, but he lived a perfect life. And his perfect record is credited to us. Our guilt is credited to him when we place our faith in him, when we believe his claim to be God the Son and we surrender our wills to him, and we trust him as our approach to God, that God will forgive us through Christ having died for us. That's faith in Jesus Christ, or that's faith in the Lamb. It has to be repentance, surrender, will, and faith, two sides of a coin. Then we are reckoned righteous. So here he says, the righteous perish. Now, <clears throat> perish, as E.J. Young in his commentary says, this is not an ordinary natural death. Uh, but a sudden 
dying before one's time is what's in view here. Solomon comments about that. He observed that happening in his day. In Ecclesiastes 7.15, he says, There's a just man that perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man that prolongs his death and his wickedness, prolongs his life in his wickedness. Excuse me. Uh, maybe some notable righteous man had died a sudden death. Uh, right in Isaiah's day as he's writing this, or several such men. And uh, notice, uh, while Isaiah had observed this carefully, others had not. The lack of attention to this. In verse 1, the righteous perish and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away and no one understands the lack of appreciation of this. Now, you get the situation of that happening, the explanation. Why did it happen? And it says that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. They're being delivered from some impending catastrophe. You had Isaiah and Jeremiah warning about the Babylonian captivity that was going to take place, that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and uh, take them into captivity. That was an impending catastrophe uh, in Jeremiah's day, and Isaiah had predicted this happening. Uh, and uh, so uh, Jeremiah, prior to that captivity, bemoans the fact that there weren't any righteous men around. They'd all been taken away. Calvin points out that this has an application to every day, the day in which we live. He says, this doctrine is highly appropriate to every age. It frequently happens that God takes good men out of this world when he intends to punish severely uh, the iniquities of the ungodly. For the Lord, having a peculiar regard for his own people, takes compassion upon them and, as it were, snatches them from the burning. And yet, this is not an invariable rule, for righteous men are frequently involved with the reprobate in temporal punishments. When calamities take place, often the righteous are involved in that. Uh, Now, he, Calvin having said that, then comments on the death of Martin Luther, who was a contemporary of Calvin's. And he talked about how Luther had warned Germany about its impenitence and its sin of the great majority of the people. And that God was going to judge that nation. Well, then uh, Luther dies rather suddenly. And shortly thereafter, there's a very unforeseen, unexpected war that occurs that brought great tribulation on the people of Germany. And he says that's an illustration of it. Matthew Henry says that when God calls his ambassadors home, it's a declaration of war. When we're going to declare war on a country, we call our ambassadors home. He says when God calls his ambassadors home, it's a declaration of war. Now, notice the result for the individual 
that perished in the sense of died suddenly. In uh, verse 2, this righteous man who dies suddenly, it says, Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. Uh, they enter into peace. The King James says they shall rest in their beds. Now, uh, E.J. Young in his commentary feels like the bed they're resting in has to do with their deathbed as they're facing death suddenly, but yet uh, maybe long enough to think about it. Uh, that uh, they have absolutely no fear. They enter into peace. Uh, they find rest as they lie in death. Uh, and they have walked uprightly. They haven't been perfect, but they have surrendered their will. They place their faith in the Lamb or in Jesus Christ. They they see the evidence of His work in their life. When you have faith, you have new heart, and as a result of new heart, your life begins to change and becomes one who walks uprightly. The trend of your life is one of obedience. And seeing that, they have peace. They're not afraid of death. Uh, we had we have a lady in our congregation who died. Just this past uh, Friday, Thursday afternoon, I guess. Uh, Ollie Gilbert. Ollie Gilbert was in our storefront when we started Briarwood. And uh, she wasn't a young lady at that point. Now we are 40 years later. Uh, She died when she was 91 years old. Ollie left uh, a lot of instructions about her funeral. And... uh, she says, Dear Reverend Frank and Reverend Kenneth Wilson, I'm Ollie Gertrude Goggins Gilbert. Uh, <clears throat> will you two, if possible, preside at my last roundup? Uh, this scripture service was put together by me more than 40 years ago. Now, she wrote this uh, 11 years ago. And at that point, it was 40 years ago that this was put together. Uh, when I was to have a throat operation and didn't know if I would live. She says, uh, I'm now 80 and a half years old in fairly good health, but uh, I am planning a prolonged, a prearranged funeral for myself. I don't know what day or hour my Lord will call. And... Uh, As she makes this out, uh, she has a peace. She selects the different hymns. One of the hymns she wants is, When They Ring the Golden Bells. There's a land beyond the river that we call the sweet forever. And we only reach that shore by faith's decree. One by one, we'll gain the portals there to dwell with the immortals when they ring the golden bells for you and me. When our days shall know their number, when in death we sweetly slumber, when the king commands the spirit to be free, nevermore with anguish laden we shall reach that lovely uh, Eden when they ring the golden bells for you and me. Don't you hear the bells now ringing? Don't you hear the angels singing? Tis the glory, hallelujah, jubilee. 
uh, in that far-off sweet forever, just beyond the shining river, when they ring the golden bells for you and me. Peace, as she thinks about death. How... Uh, hers, of course, was what we'd call a, not an untimely death. All of this is instructive. Uh, we have we have such a narrow perspective on death. Uh, I think of uh, some Christian who dies young, and we say, "What a tragedy!" God says, "What a blessing." Not a tragedy for the one who died. Regardless of whether there was a great national calamity coming and he missed it or not. There wasn't a great national calamity coming. Still, a blessing for the one who died. Uh, For the Christian, death is gain. Death is far better, to quote Paul. In Acts 12, you have... James beheaded by Herod. Uh, Then you have Peter taken and placed in prison, and the church prays that Peter would be delivered, and Peter is delivered. Which was the greater deliverances? James by beheading, or Peter by an angel who comes and opens the prison gate? In a sense, James's was the greater deliverance. He went on to heaven. Uh, when they rang the golden bells for him. Now, uh, believing that helps tremendously when a loved Christian dies. Ruth Graham Bell has a book of collected poems. Or Ruth Bell Graham, excuse me, Ruth Graham. And here's a poem that uh, she wrote about a woman whose little boy died. I'm Daniel Creasman's mother. I brung these clothes so as you could dress him up real natural-like. No, Navy wouldn't do. He liked this little play suit. It's sort of faded now. That tour place he got trying to help his daddy plow. No, if he dressed real smart-like and all that fancy trim, the last we'd see of Danny, it wouldn't seem like him. But comb his hair, real special. It wouldn't seem odd. I brush it so come Sunday when he goes to the house of God. That afternoon I saw him, so still, so tanned, he lay, with a faded blue suit on him, like he'd just come in from play. But his hair was brushed real special. And it didn't seem one bit odd, for he was just a small boy, done with play, gone home to the house of God. A blessing for the little boy. Tragic. Tragic for the mama. That's a tragedy for us who miss those. And we understand that. But would we choose our good over their good if we had the choice? C.S. Lewis, 
You remember C.S. Lewis was a bachelor most of his life. And later in life he married, and he hadn't been married but <clears throat> oh, years. And his wife got cancer and died a, a lingering death, a very painful death. And he wrote his, his feelings about it as this went on, a grief observed. And he says this. He says, if I knew that to be eternally divided from her and eternally forgotten by her would add a greater joy and splendor to her being, of course I'd say far ahead. Just as if on earth I could have cured her cancer by never seeing her again, out of range, never to see her again. He's saying she's better off. And uh, if I had the power to bring her back, it wouldn't be for her good that I brought her back. It'd be for my good, and that would be selfish. My good compared to her good. And I wouldn't do it. As much as I want her back. If we say, but think of the pain of deaths like that. A lingering, painful death. And he wrestles with that. He says, oh God, tenderly, tenderly. Already month by month and week by week, you broke her body on the wheel while she still wore it. Is this not yet enough? The terrible thing is that a perfectly good God is in this matter hardly less formidable than a cosmic sadist. The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there's any use in begging him for tenderness. A cruel man might be bribed, might grow tired of his vile sport might have a temporary fit of mercy, as alcoholics have fits of sobriety. But suppose that what you're up against is a surgeon whose intentions are totally good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. But is it credible that such extremities of torture should be necessary for us? Does God have to put my wife through that? Well, take your choice. The tortures occur. If they're unnecessary, then there is no God or a bad God. If there's a good God, then these tortures are necessary for no even moderately good, moderately good being could possibly inflict or permit them if they weren't. And you read in Scripture that God uses pain as part of the process of perfecting our souls, of uh, dealing with us to mature us spiritually in various ways. Now, we see the reason for the death of some of the righteous. Notice the rebuke of the doings of the unrighteous in verse 3. He speaks of their ancestry, in a sense. He says, But you, 
Come here, you sons of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Uh, here are the unrighteous uh, who uh, spiritually are certainly uh, on the other side of the fence here. And uh, again, uh, he's just dealing with those who had not surrendered their will or had true faith. And uh, he's speaks of their mockery in verse 4. Whom are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? Now, either they're mocking the righteous, <clears throat> thinking of them as fanatics. Think about America today. You stand up for Christ. You stand up for the things of the Word of God. You teach it like it says it is, that Jesus Christ is the only way. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. You teach that uh, homosexuality, you practice homosexuality, you're not going to heaven. Uh, you teach that uh, uh, abortion is killing children. You teach that, and you're regarded as an extremist, as a fanatic. You're mocked. Our, uh, the uh, idolatry in verse 5, you burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. Sexual immorality here is involved in the worship of these false gods, such as Molech and so on. Uh, you sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. They actually had child sacrifice. Well, a million and a half children in America uh, boarded each year. Uh, what do we sacrifice them to? Uh, the, their adultery. In verse 8, Behold, behind the doors and your doorposts you have put your pagan symbols, forsaking me. You uncovered your bed. Spiritual adultery. As they worship these false gods. You climbed into it, opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose bed you love. Uh, you went to Malek with olive oil. Uh, well, the false gods in America, we worship pleasure. Uh, we worship uh, materialism. We worship uh, power. Those kind of things. Uh, uh, their folly, their vanity as they do this. He says in verse 12, I will expose your righteousness in your works, and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off, or mere breath will blow them away. Uh, they thought uh, that uh, their righteousness would stand up, but it's a vain hope. Now, notice we see the, the reasons for the death of some of the righteous, the rebuke of the doings of the unrighteous. The response of God to those who rely on him. And verse 13, the last part of it. But the man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. The man who makes me his refuge uh, will inherit the land. Here's some who are relying on him. And uh, God responds there. They will inherit the land. They will... They will be brought back from captivity, if, if, if the captivity is in view here. Uh, they will be there in Jerusalem. 
They will inherit his holy mountain, and of course they will be in heaven. That picture is, in a sense, heaven. Uh, and uh, the uh, reason uh, for this assertion uh, says, uh, verse 15, For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is a contrite and lowly in spirit. Uh, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Notice the assertion, uh, his declaration concerning his attributes. He is the high and lofty one. Uh, he lives forever. He is holy. He lives in a high and holy place. That's what God is like. But his acceptance of the contrite, the humble. It says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. The one who humbles himself to me, he will be with me. He will dwell with me. Have we done that? Have we humbled ourselves before God? And uh, concerning his activity, with regard to those that he accepts there, he says, to revive the spirit, to uh, raise them up. To encourage them, to strengthen them, to revive the spirit of the Lord, to revive the heart of the contrite. And he speaks of limiting his anger in verse 16. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry. For then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. Uh, That's a precious promise, a gracious promise, that he will limit his anger Uh, The reason why he wouldn't contend forever the frailty of the creature, of man. But the reason why he had contended in in the past and in the present. Verse 17, I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger. Yet he kept on in his willful ways. God is angry at men when when we keep on in our willful ways and violate his law. But the manifestation of his grace. In verse 18, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him. He will bring men and women to repentance and, uh, and forgive and restore comfort to him. Creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Notice the ones that he does that for. Those who mourn, those who mourn over their sin. And turn to him. Then they are forgiven. And there's no forgiveness without that mourning in a sense. But it's sheer grace that he does this. They don't deserve forgiveness. But he gives it in sheer grace. Now, uh, the result for those who remain in their impenitence. In verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. Which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked. Again, anyone who has not surrendered his will to God and placed his faith in God's promise to forgive in the way that he's appointed. That's the wicked person, biblically. They live according to their own will. They haven't surrendered their will to him. They are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up all these things. 
There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Uh, He says it, and that settles it. Now, let us beware of speaking peace to ourselves, saying, I'm going to be all right, if we haven't surrendered to him. When God says there's no peace, there's no peace. And uh, be ready. And as a Christian, once I'm a Christian, I need to deal with anything that's not right in my life as he shows it to me. Uh, Because he wants us to more and more be conformed to the image of Christ, more and more yield our wills. So we need to be dealing with that. Keep our lamps burning and trimmed. Let us accept his testimony concerning the state of the unrighteous. Uh, that that's their situation. There is no peace. And uh, while they are engaging in sin and uh, they believe that they are all right, they are fooling themselves. Uh, in Job, Job says that those are, they are those who uh, roll sin around as a sweet morsel under their tongue, but it proves the very gall of ass within them. And let us accept God's testimony concerning the state of the righteous, and uh, particularly those who die, maybe unexpectedly, suddenly, that their state is blessed, that they are better off. C.S. Lewis uh, winds up his book, his last statement. He says, How wicked it would be if we could to call the dead back. She said, not to me, but to the chaplain, I'm at peace with God. She smiled, but not at me. She smiled at him, he saying. Let us gladly accept God's offer of mercy and forgiveness through Christ. Uh, Holly Gilbert had a poem. I don't know if she wrote it or if she copied it. When Jesus shall gather the nations before him at last to appear, then how shall we stand in the judgment when summoned our sentence to hear? Shall we hear from his lips, from the lips of the Savior, the words, Faithful servant, well done. Or trembling with fear and with anguish, be banished away from his throne. He will smile when he looks on his children and sees on the ransomed his seal. He will clothe them in heavenly beauty as how at his footstool, as low at his footstool they kneel. Then let us be watching and waiting with our lamps burning steady and bright. When the bridegroom shall call to the wedding, oh, may we be ready for flight. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, is there some area of your life that you know that God is not happy with, that uh, you have not been facing, have been uh, protecting from dealing with.
Why not deal with it now? Why not surrender it to him? If you're not a Christian, uh, you're not righteous. Be one of those mourners. Humble yourself. He's the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, but he dwells with those who are contrite of spirit. Why not say to him that you recognize your situation and that you really want to be right with him? Pray in your heart like this, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. I humble myself. I turn and I trust you to forgive me and to come into my life right now. Amen.